continuing in the book of Mark, so you can turn to Luke 22. I very much appreciate Micah standing here last week. He did that on very short notice. I called him on Saturday morning and said, I don't think there's any way that I'm going to be able to cough and sneeze and hack my way through a sermon tomorrow. So I very much appreciate that there are men here at GCA that I can call on and that they are willing to stand here. And I'm glad that I have men around me who I know I can trust and who aren't going to do any damage, but who are going to preach the word of God faithfully and not get off into too much opinionating, but just stick to what the word says. So I very much appreciate that. Now... Why are we in Luke 22 this morning? Well, we reached the place two weeks ago where Mark was describing the end of the Passover supper that Jesus just shared with his apostles. And then they sang a hymn and then they go to Gethsemane. But Luke includes some details about what happens on that journey between the upper room where the Last Supper is held and getting to Gethsemane. Now, Mark has told us over and over again that despite Jesus' very clear declarations that he is going to die, that he is going to raise again, despite him telling them this time and time again, each time Mark tells us that they just did not understand. And one of the things that they seem to discuss the most or argue about the most is that they argue about who's going to be the greatest among them. And so they're still involved in these sort of egocentric, self-promoting conversations. Well, Luke tells us that as they're traveling from the upper room where that last supper was held on their way to Gethsemane, they're still having that conversation. So what does that show you? Shows you something really important. It shows you that even though Jesus had been in their midst for three and a half years, even though he had been teaching them the word of God and pointing them back to the scripture over and over again, even though they had heard him say time and time again, this is God speaking to you, even though they had all of the evidence they needed in terms of miracles and in terms of walking on water or seeing people healed or the blind being able to see or people raised from the dead, even though they had all the evidence they needed to demonstrate that Jesus was who he said he was, they were still firmly bound up in their own ego and their own flesh, and they still couldn't understand who he was, which is why he said, Zechariah has already predicted that the shepherd is going to be struck, and when they strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to scatter. You are all going to run to save your own skin. You're all going to scatter. Why would they do that? Because they're still firmly in their flesh. They're still trying to save their own flesh. So much so that Peter even says braggadociously, even if everybody runs away from you, I'll never deny you. Causing Jesus to say, before the cock crows, 
you're going to deny me three times. By the second time the rooster is crowing, you will have denied me three times, despite the fact that in your flesh you think you're the one who's going to maintain his integrity and stand up and be the Christian. I'm telling you, you're not, because you're still in your flesh. Why am I driving this point? Because this is a simple reality of Christianity. After your flesh, after your own fleshly mind, after your own human spirit, despite how much evidence you may have or how many things you've been taught by well-taught and eloquent people who can even prove it to you, despite all that, you will never, never understand until the Holy Spirit inhabits you, which is why Jesus says to them after his resurrection, after restoring Peter, after Peter had denied him three times and Jesus restores him three times, after all that, Jesus tells them, stay here. Wait here in Jerusalem until you are imbued with power from above. Don't go out and preach right now. I know you've seen me dead and you've seen me alive again. Don't preach yet because you'll mess it up because you're still in your flesh. You're still not driven by the Spirit of God. Remain here in Jerusalem until you receive that promised Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of knowledge, the Holy Spirit of God. Once you receive that Spirit, then go out, tell the whole world, tell every living creature, tell everybody. But don't do it under your own power. Wait until you've got power from on high, then do it. So for three and a half years... They've been listening to Jesus. They've had all of this evidence. And here they are walking to Gethsemane. This is the pivotal night. This is the night that Judas is going to betray Jesus. This is the night that Jesus is going to go to the kangaroo court. It's in Australia. And then, sorry. This is the night that they're going to try Jesus and they're going to hang him on a chunk of wood. This is the beginning of the three days of Jesus redeeming his people for all of eternity. This just couldn't be a more important moment in time. Mm -hmm. And listen to what Luke says they're arguing about. <laughs> this is the demonstration that they still just don't get it. Because human beings, by their own power and their own flesh, cannot get it. That's the point. So if you get it, if you understand, if you have the least concept of who God is and who Christ is and what this Bible is about and what did happen and what's going to happen and the supremacy of Christ in all things, if you have the least concept of that, it's only because God has allowed you to know that. Amen. He has demonstrated that to you internally by the Holy Spirit or you would be just like these guys still arguing about who's going to be the important one. Thank God. Thank you, God. Yeah. Let's start reading in chapter 22 of Luke, verse 24. Actually, we'll go back just a couple of verses. Actually, go back one verse. Go back to 23. They began to discuss among themselves 
which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. That's the betraying of Jesus. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. This is what they're still discussing. So Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over the Gentiles. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest. And let the leader be as the servant. How many times now have you seen Jesus say this? True, genuine greatness in heaven is laying down your life on behalf of other people. Paul writes that faith, hope, and love, these three remain, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is agape. And as I keep saying that agape love has to do with sacrificing on behalf of other people, doing what is best for the person being loved, even if the person being loved doesn't know that that's what's best for them and they don't want it or appreciate it, but you do it anyway sacrificially for them because that's what's best for them. Sacrificial love, the kind of love that only God can demonstrate, he by his spirit expects from his people in dealing with each other. And so that is the absolute inverse of egocentricity or me first or I'm the important one or I'm great. Jesus takes the time to say the great ones among you are the ones who act like the youngest among you. And the leader among you is the one who's going to be your servant. Now what did Jesus just do at the Last Supper? Now Mark didn't record it But at the Last Supper, Jesus washed their feet. Typically, if you were a person who had servants, you didn't want people with their dirty, stinky feet walking around on your good floors. Most houses just had dirt floors, so it was no big deal. But if you were wealthy enough to have a finished floor, the last thing you wanted was people tracking dirt in. So you would have a servant, a slave, the lowest of the slaves, who would sit at the door with towels and pitchers of water, and as you came in, they would wash your feet, and then when they would finish your feet, you would walk into the house paying virtually no attention to that servant that just cleaned your feet. That was a low level of servitude. And Jesus... At the Last Supper, got up from the table, took off his robe, girded himself about with a towel, and started washing their feet. What was he doing? He was demonstrating the very thing he just said here. The greatest among you is going to be servant among you. So he took the lowest position in the household and went about washing their dirty, stinky feet. And of course, Peter said, no, not mine. You're not going to wash my feet. No. And so Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me. So Peter goes way over the top and goes, well, then just wash me all over. Good old Peter, Mr. Sandal and Mouth. Jesus asks them, do you understand what I just did? I just served you. Because I, truly, genuinely, the greatest among you, took on the position of servant among you. 
as a demonstration that that's how you're supposed to be with each other. This is basic Christianity 101. There is no really important guy. There is no there is no MVP, says my daughter, and she's exactly right. There is no most valuable player among Christianity. There's only one hero in Christianity, and that's Jesus. Amen. Everybody else is subservient to him, therefore you are supposed to act subservient to each other. That's essential to what Christianity is. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves him there at the table? Is it not the one who's reclining at the table? That's obvious. If there's two people in a room and one person is serving the other, the one who's being served is obviously the important one, the greater one, the one with more stature, the one with more money. So he's saying, I'm the one who reclines at the table. You're my servants, but I am among you as one who serves. I'm a servant among you, and I just demonstrated it. I just washed your feet, and I just served you at the end of the Passover supper when I served you my body and my blood. In fact, I believe that Jesus is pointing out that he is even going to go lay down his life and suffer the wrath of God so that we don't have to because he is serving us in the doing of the thing we can't do in and of ourselves. And so if he would serve us to that degree... How ought we be? What should we be like? What kind of people should we be? So then Jesus goes on. Verse 28, and you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Stop there for just a moment. Does Jesus sound like the kingdom is a genuine, literal thing that's still coming? Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 All those promises about a kingdom all the way through the Old Testament, all those times that he pointed out the prophecies in the Old Testament and said they're all being fulfilled in him. He's now talking about a kingdom to come. In fact, at the Last Supper, he even said that he was not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it new with them in the kingdom. Hmm. Now he has said... Beyond just waiting for you so that we can eat and drink together, we're going to eat and drink together in the kingdom because I'm granted a kingdom. I do have a kingdom to come. So then I grant to you, since I'm the king, I grant to you that you will, catch this, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What's he talking about? can't be talking about heaven, because in heaven, the judging is done. There's no need for a judge. What is the history of Israel? The history of Israel, before they had a king, before their first king, Saul, they had a series of leaders who were called judges, which is why in the Old Testament, there's a book called 
judges. It's the story of the judges of Israel. And he just said, I'm going to grant in the future, in the kingdom, that you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You're arguing about your own self-importance. Your importance within yourself doesn't count for anything. But I am going to grant you that you're going to have authority in my kingdom to come. And you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. What does that tell you about the kingdom? Well, it tells you the 12 tribes of Israel have to be there. Okay, so where are the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, ever since the Assyrian captivity, they've been scattered. They're the ones that we refer to as the lost tribes. Because they've been lost to history. And they've been scattered among the Gentiles. What did we see just a couple weeks ago? Jesus predicted, and it was paralleled in the Old Testament, that God was going to scatter them as far as he could scatter them, as far under the four corners of the earth and the four winds of heaven. He was going to scatter them. And then Jesus says that God is going to send an angel who is going to collect them from the four winds of heaven, from the four corners of the earth. He's going to collect Israel again, and they're going to be gathered again to establish the kingdom that Jesus is going to rule over. And then he's going to have governors or judges over each of those tribes. Those 12 tribes will be judged by the 12 apostles. Is that too obvious it's what it says so what does that do to your eschatology you have to allow whatever your eschatological bent you have to allow that it says that in fact you have to allow that Jesus who would know said that in fact you have to allow that Jesus whose eschatology is much more accurate than all human beings eschatology said that In fact, you have to grant that Jesus, who is the absolute authority, who is in control of heaven, hell, and earth, who made everything and is going to complete everything and bring everything to fruition, and every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, you have to allow that he said that. So if anybody says anything different, they're wrong. They're just wrong. You have to allow that there's a future kingdom coming in which those 12 apostles will be sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I would really like to see somebody allegorize that. Because you can't allegorize it because it says what it says. Yes, sir, Duane. In the book of Acts, remember they draw straws to determine who the 12th apostle is going to be? And maybe, just maybe... The 12th turns out to be the one God chose, and it turns out to be Paul. But either way, there's still 12, right? Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, one more quick question. Have you seen Jesus and the 12 apostles sit at a table sharing a meal together and Jesus drinking wine again. Have you found anything in history that resembles that or anyone in the early church who actually said that happened? Can you find that anywhere? No. No. So what does that tell you? It tells you the kingdom's not now. And by the way, if this is the kingdom, I feel exceptionally let down. (laughs) I'm really, really disappointed if this is it. 
But it's not it, because the very thing that Jesus said is going to happen hasn't happened. The 12 tribes have to be regathered. That hasn't happened. The 12 apostles have to be judges over those 12 tribes. Hasn't happened. And he has not yet established his rule in Jerusalem. So it just hasn't happened. Then picking up at verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now notice the context that Luke put that sentence in. Mark and Matthew put it in a different context, but Luke, who is attempting to put everything in its proper order, puts it in the conversation as they're heading for Gethsemane. So what does Peter do? Well, at Gethsemane, Peter's going to act up a couple different ways. He's going to pull out a sword and lop off a guy's ear. He's going to try to fight when Jesus says, put away your sword. The fighting's over. And then he's going to three times deny that he knows the Lord. So possibly that's part of that sifting that Satan is doing in Peter. But notice Peter's redemption. Peter can't help himself. Peter can't save himself. Peter is still in this who's greatest argument. He's still caught up in his flesh. So what is the surety for Peter? Verse 32 says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, when once you have repented of what you're about to do, then strengthen your brethren. Okay, so, notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. You'd better get busy cleaning yourself up. You should do better. You should right away do a whole series of really, really good works that you can point to. No, he didn't say any of that. He said, The only reason you're going to survive the sifting that's coming, even though you're going to deny me and you're going to run and you're going to scatter, I'm going to be the sole reason that your faith continues because I have prayed for you. I have interceded for you. I am your surety despite yourself. Okay, this will be fun. How many of you have ever taken a good look at yourself and and thought, oh, woe is me? That ought to be every hand in the place. That moment when you realize God can't save a wretch like me. Look at me. Look at how I've been. Look at what I've thought. Look at what I've done. Okay, now the standard religion will tell you that the only place you're going to get security and surety is to go get better. Go do better. Do better. I've had so many... Preachers yell that at me over the years. Just do better. But I am convinced that if you could do better, you would have by now. This is what you got. This is what you are. This is what you're like. And despite all your flaws, despite your warts and all, despite who you are and what you're like, this is the best you can do. Which means there can't be anything within you It's going to help you. There can't be anything in you that's going to improve who you are. Because you are who you are. And this is you. That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. 
So then, what is your hope? What is your surety? What is your guarantee that it's going to be okay between you and God eternally? It can't be you. It has to be the intercession of Jesus. He is the only surety that actually works. So he said to Peter, Satan has watched your behavior and he wants to sift you like wheat. That's a scary phrase. He wants to just wear you out. He's a lion on the prowl, but I prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. And then when you're converted, when you're turned, when you've repented, then strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go to prison and to death. Attaboy, Peter. Peter. (laughs) Taking one for the team. Yeah. Does Peter do any of that? No. What does that show you? It shows you that our best intentions are really determined good intentions all fall away. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick by it. I'm going to stay with it. I've been at this. June will be 18 years we've been a public church. If you go back to how long I've been doing this at my house, stuff, I'm about 20 years into this thing right now. And I have seen people through the years make broad declarations of their absolute commitment. They're so determined to stay with Jesus and the Bible is true and I'm with you, Jim. And, oh, Christianity, that's the way to go. And I can't begin to count the number of people that have just disappeared, just fallen away, just turned their back on everything they once said they loved. Now, fortunately, Jesus said that's going to happen. In the parable of the soils, there was going to be that kind of seed that sprang up quickly, but because it had no root in it, it's, it's going to fade away, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches is going to eat it up. John says they were among us, but they went out from us because they were never really of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out to make manifest they're not of us. Okay, so the Bible says there's going to be people like that, but Peter's a great demonstration of it. Peter stands up to Jesus and says, man, you can count on me. Even if they all run, even if they all scatter, I'm with you. I'm sticking with you no matter what. Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times. And said that you do not know me. Not just denying that I'm the Savior. Not just denying that I'm the Messiah. You're going to say you were never with me and you don't know me. That's how big a man Peter is. Then he said to them, when I sent you out without a purse or a bag, a beggar's bag or extra sandals, You didn't lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. Because he's absolutely sovereign. He told them, go out, heal, preach, preach the kingdom of God. 
And as you go out and do that, don't take extra clothes or extra sandals. Don't take a beggar's bag. Wherever you go, the people are going to take care of you. They're going to provide for you. If they don't, brush the dust off you. Walk away. Now he asked them, did you lack anything? They say, no, almost like they're looking back on it and realizing, you know, that's right. Even when we went out and did it, we had everything we needed. Why? Because Jesus sent them. Jesus sent them out. Jesus is sovereign. He made sure to provide for them. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, trust me, he's going to give you what you need for this lifetime. Because he's sovereign, he's in charge, he's going to make sure that you have what you need. You're going to get through. When I sent you out without purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, nothing. And he said, but now, watch the reverse. Let him who has a purse, that means you already have some money built up, take it with you. Likewise, also a bag, a script, a beggar's bag. And let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. Wow, meek and mild Jesus says, sell your robe and get a sword because it's about to get tough. Why? Because he's leaving and there's going to be all kinds of opposition to this Christianity, an opposition that still exists to this day. For I tell you, verse 37, for I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. So that has to be fulfilled in me. For that which refers to me must have its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. They've just heard him say, if you don't have a sword, sell your robe and get a sword. Now we know that Peter has a sword on him. So Peter and one other person go, hey, look, here's two swords. Now in Luke... It says, it is enough. It's actually a single Greek word, and I don't think he was saying, oh, yeah, that's sufficient. Oh, yeah, two swords. Because he's going to use the same phrase in a little while when they can't stay awake with him. At some point, he's had enough of them. He's tired of dealing with them. He says, sell your robe, buy a sword. They go, hey, look, here's two swords. And he just goes, enough. I've about had it with you all. Starting to argue again and again about who's going to be the best among you. Okay, so that whole conversation took place on the way to Gethsemane. And you would miss that in Mark. So I just wanted you to see it. Just kind of fill in the blank. Turn to Mark now. And we are in Mark 14. And that was all introduction. Yay! Yay! So that doesn't count against my time. Look, you all got an extra hour of sleep, right? Right. Yeah, so you you can stick around a little longer. We're going to start reading in Mark 14, verse 32. The Lord's Supper has just finished. And verse 32 says, and they came to a place called Gethsemane. So Mark just leaps right from the Passover supper, to them going to Gethsemane and doesn't tell you all that conversation with Luke. He said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. That gives you some sense of why he was deeply grieved, why he was grieving in his soul and deeply distressed and troubled. Because that hour that he kept saying, my time's not yet, my hour is not yet, it was now here. It was now upon him. Now, I don't think at this point he was fearful just of the beatings to come. And the beatings were awful. I don't think it was the crown of thorns that he knew was coming. I don't even think it was the nails going through his hands and feet as terribly as that would hurt. He knew all that was coming. It's all prophesied. He knows that's going to occur. But while he's on the cross, he's going to endure the wrath of God. He's going to be separated from his father for that moment. As he becomes sin for us, the one who knew no sin has the collective sins of all his redeemed placed on him so that he becomes that sacrificial lamb and he is sacrificed by God and he endures the wrath of God. So bad is that moment that there's three hours of darkness. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us why three hours of darkness. I think it's so that human beings like you and I couldn't look on that sacred body as it was being punished by God on behalf of all his people. Now, that's just my opinion, but the three hours existed for some reason. There was darkness. There was earthquakes when he died. This was a cataclysmic event. And he knew better than anybody, how bad it was going to be. And so his soul was troubled by it to the degree that he would pray, if it's possible, let this hour pass. If it were possible, let's not do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He turns himself over completely to God. Verse 35, and he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Do you hear that? He even said, you are absolutely sovereign. Everything's possible Isn't there another way to accomplish this same thing? Can't we redeem all your people some other way? If it were possible, let this cup pass from me. He is about to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And he's going to drink it full. And he's going to drink it on your account. So that Paul can write that we are not appointed to wrath. Because he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath dry for us. And he's 
worried about it. He knows this is going to be difficult, painful, something that none of us have ever known or will ever know, thank God. Yeah. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he came and he found them sleeping. What's the last thing he said to them? Watch. Watch. Stay awake. Watch. Why watch? Because there's people coming to get me. Judas is coming to betray me. Watch. What are they doing? Sleeping. Sleeping. Now, it's night. It's late at night. It's dark. They've had wine with their dinner. They're just letting their flesh take over. And they're just going to doze off. So he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? So he's woken Peter up and he says, keep watching and praying. Now he adds that. You need to be in prayer that you may not come into temptation. This is a dark night. Satan himself has inhabited Judas who's going to come and betray me. This is a cataclysmic moment. Stay awake and pray that you yourself don't enter into the temptation. I understand, he says, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, flesh is weak. That's the same thing that Paul argues about in Romans 7. The things that after his mind he would do, the person that he wants to be, that's not who he is. He finds then this law in his members that where he would do the right thing, where he would do good, sin is present with me because I'm still in the flesh. Here these guys have a direct command from Jesus, the Lord Almighty. Stay awake, pray. It's a direct imperative. Stay awake, don't fall asleep, pray. You know what they're going to do? Fall asleep. Because as willing as their spirit may be, you know, even if everybody runs off, I'll never leave you, I'll fight for you, I'll die for you. Yeah, that may be your spirit talking, but let it happen and your flesh is going to show what you're really made of. And that's true of all of us. That's true of us every day. We get up and go, today, I'm going to be the good Christian. <laughs> today, I'm going to live out my convictions. Today, I'm not going to get angry. Today, I'm not going to fight. Today, I'm, going to, I'm not going to sin. And today, I'm not going to use any bad language. And today, I'm not going to waste my time on Facebook. And today, I'm not. Today, I'm going to. And then what do you do? Your flesh takes over. You get bored. You eat too much, and you drink too much, and you say things you shouldn't say, and you start arguing with people, and you're not happy, and you're never content, and you're not thankful, and you're not... Why? Because the spirit is willing. But man, the flesh is weak. This flesh needs to be redeemed. This flesh needs to be capable, and it's not. And if you don't believe that's true, here we'll try this one. Last time any of you were sick, could you think your way out of it? But did you want to be well? Sure, you wanted to be well. 
I had an awful cold this week. I mean awful. And I, every hour, I wanted to get well. But I couldn't because no matter how willing my spirit was to do better and be better and get healed and miraculously get up off my deathbed, despite the fact that I was willing, my flesh was weak. I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but I'm getting older. (laughs) I don't want to. I keep thinking, no, stop it. Don't get older. Doesn't work. Spirit's willing. Flesh, weak. This flesh is just going to get old and die. That's the best flesh can do. And flesh and the things you do in the flesh can never be genuinely pleasing to God. It takes the spirit of God inhabiting your flesh to even get you to do the works, the good works that you're ordained to walk in. Even then, you get no credit. You never get to go, yay, me, up, up, up with people. You never get to do that. It's always the Spirit of God that brings about any goodness or righteousness or good work in you because the Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak, and the Spirit of God has to empower you to do better, or you never will. And even as you go through this life doing better, you're never going to hit holy. You're never going to hit truly, genuinely perfect and righteous. You're always going to be dependent on God. Because no matter how willing your spirit is, your flesh is weak. So Jesus says to them, watch and pray. Keep watching, keep praying. Verse 39, and again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words, Mark says, which means he said again, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Matthew tells us that he prayed so fervently that his sweat was like great drops of blood. That's the agony he was in at this moment. Don't undercut this don't make light of this the price that he paid for you was such a high price that he agonized over it this wasn't a walk in the park this wasn't a light Sunday afternoon this wasn't something that he just did haphazardly this is something that he agonized over he was going to endure the very wrath of God so that you don't have to And again, verse 40, he came to them, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He wakes them up again and says, are you sleeping again? And they're kind of humming, 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 humming. I got nothing. I don't know what to say now. I know what you told us. You told us stay awake and pray. But we, we, we dozed off. And he came A third time to them and said, are you still sleeping and taking rest? Here's that word again. Enough. Hmm. He's getting tired of them. He's not saying, oh, you've had a little bit of sleep. Well, that's enough. That's enough sleep. That's probably good. You're awake now, right? You feel good now? Refreshed? That's not what he means by the enough here. It means I've had enough. I'm done. The hour has come. 
Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. And behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Because they don't know who they're looking for. They've just been sent to go get him. So he, the betrayer, makes a deal with them and says, When we get there, I'm going to greet them all, and then I'm going to walk up to one guy. I'm going to give him a kiss. When I do that, you know he's the one. You go catch him. Luke tells us, that Jesus turns and looks at Judas and says, are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Before Judas even does it, Jesus already knows what the deal is, what the sign is. And he says, he points out the hypocrisy. Are you going to betray me with an act of love? This is the same Jesus who has told them to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is the unholiest of kisses. He's going to kiss Jesus to betray Jesus. Verse 45. After coming, he immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, like teacher. And he kissed him. And then they laid hands on him and they seized him. But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark doesn't tell us the rest of that story, but we know that the high priest's servant is named Malchus. And we also know that after his ear was lopped off by Peter, which, by the way, we're told that it was Peter who's wielding a sword, and Peter is so good with it, so accurate, that he lops off a guy's ear. That's how lousy he is at swordsmanship. He's just swinging this sword wildly and and lops off a guy's ear. And Jesus says, okay, again, enough. Put up your sword. The time is over for fighting. And then Jesus in the garden being caught by these guards, being bound to be taken to trial at that moment, picks up the guy's ear off the ground and heals it back onto his head, proving That he's still completely in charge. He still has all the power. He still has all the authority. So why are they able to capture him? Well, because it's his hour. He said, this is the time. This is the Passover. This is the moment that was chosen before the foundation of the world. I haven't lost any of my authority. I haven't lost any of my lordship. I still have all my power here. I'm going to heal your ear. There, I can do that. Can any of you do that? The answer is no. I can do that. I'm still in charge. I'm still the Lord of glory. But okay, for the sake of my people, I'm going to let you capture me. I'm going to let you try me. I'm going to let you kill me. Because I have this command from my father. A certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Hmm. 
Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. I've been among you all the time. Why didn't you capture me in the temple? Because you know the people wouldn't stand for it. You're doing this secretly. You're doing it secretly in the dark, thinking you're hiding the things you're doing. But this happened, he says, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That's why you're here doing this. Now, did they think when they came out to capture Jesus, did they think they were fulfilling scripture? No. No. Did they do it anyway? Yes. Yes. What were they doing? Well, they were only doing what their own minds and wicked hearts wanted to do. They were doing what they wanted to do, and in so doing, Jesus says, you're fulfilling scripture right now. Right now. I feel the same way when I talk to people who say, uh, oh, Christianity, that's silly, and I've read the Bible, and it doesn't make any sense to me. And I immediately think, you're doing right now exactly what the Bible says you do. Your denial of the Bible proves how true the Bible is. And you don't know it. In your own wicked heart and wicked mind, you're just doing and saying what you want to do and say. But in your doing and saying, you're satisfying what the Bible says about you. That human beings are corrupt and God-hating. Yep, there you are. Anyway, every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And they all left him, and they all fled. The apostles took off. They ran for it. Now, something that you don't read here that you do read in John's account is that when they came to get Jesus, they said to him, are you Jesus? Are you, are you the one we've come to get? And he said, I am that proper name of God. And when God uses that proper name of God, people do not remain on their feet. What we read is the whole assembly of them with their swords and their clubs and their determination to get him all fell down backwards. When he said, I am. Boom, they hit the ground. And then, this is the astounding part. They get back up up and arrest him. (laughs) You would think once you're knocked down on the ground by him just saying his name, you'd go, I'm not in this anymore. I'm going to go back home now. You guys do what you got to do, but I'm out. I'm amazed the one that had his ear healed is still arresting him. I know, it's astounding, isn't it? So what does that show you, by the way? Because human logic would say, after the ear healing and after the falling down, that any sensible person would not continue with the arrest. Why do they do it anyway? Because the scripture has to be fulfilled. This has to happen. And in fact, Paul writes about the people who are going to follow after the Antichrist, and he says that God sends on them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie And be damned. So I think in that moment, in the darkness of that night, in the fulfilling of that scripture, in that moment that absolutely had to occur, even the evidence that should have convinced them not to do it was not enough to keep them from doing it. They had to do it so much so that even when they tried so hard not to kill them on Passover, not to kill them on Passover, they did it anyway. They did it anyway. They did it anyway. Because God's, what's that? Sovereign. Right. So it works out the way he says. 
So the disciples all fled. In verse 51 says, And a certain young man was following them, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. Mark's the only one who tells us that. And most commentators will tell you that's probably John Mark who it happened to. That's why he would know it, and that's why he would include it. He's the younger man who was trying to run when everybody ran. And apparently one of the guards grabbed him, but grabbed him by the cloak he was wearing. So he just dropped the cloak and ran off naked. Now, I don't know if that means completely naked, but without his cloak. And off he ran. So next week, we will start at verse 53, and we will look at the effort that the Jews make to find something that they can charge Jesus with. Because they really don't have anything. Mark takes the time to tell us that one said one thing and one says another and and nobody ends up agreeing. So finally they're going to get him on the charge of blasphemy because they're finally going to ask him, are you the son of God? He's going to say, yeah. And that's the one that does it. The high priest tears his cloak and says, what more do we need to hear? That's the blasphemy. That's the one that they're going to kill him over. Which, by the way, I will point out, That is blasphemy. If Jeff suddenly stood up right now and said, I am the very son of God and your whole eternity is based on what you think of me, then then yeah, we're going to say, well, Jeff's not well. And he's gone around the bend and he's not going to be back anytime soon. But the only way it's not blasphemy is if it's true. So when he said it, they accused him of blasphemy when all he did was tell the truth because he's incapable of lying. So he had to admit who he was, and that's why they kill him. And they kill him right on time, right on the right day, and he goes right through the steps he has to go through. He goes to the Jews, he goes to the Gentiles, and finally... Three days, three nights later, he gets up out of the grave, and there's nobody there to greet him because everything worked out exactly the way he said it was going to because that's the way it was prophesied because that's what the word of God says. And the scripture must be fulfilled. And that means, by the way, watch me bring it around. I'm going to bring it all the way around. Watch this now. Don't get whiplash. That means that there's going to be a kingdom with 12 tribes. And 12 apostles sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes because the scripture has to be fulfilled because we've seen all the way through here how the scripture keeps being fulfilled. So then why should we have any doubt that the rest of it's going to be fulfilled? Of course, the rest of it's going to be fulfilled because as Jesus keeps saying, this happens because the scripture has to be fulfilled. You got it? And we have ample evidence that it's been fulfilled. I certainly don't know why anybody wouldn't think it's going to be. Alrighty? Right. Questions? Although you kind of got some questions in as we went. Yes, Dwayne? Right. Kiss on the cheek. Yeah. It, it, it's funny you say that. I understand. No, it just made me flash back and think. Uh, everybody probably has heard this story, but. The first time that I went to Main Street, they do that. They greet you with a holy kiss on the cheek. 
And the first time that a man kissed me on the cheek, it, it took me back. But then later, Elder Ward talked about the fact that that's such a biblical thing and how our modern society has corrupted that to give it some kind of overtone of homosexuality or something. When in fact, it's a biblical command and a perfectly good and right and pure thing that brethren in the Lord should not only love each other, but demonstrate that they love each other in the way that they care for each other, give to each other, and greet each other with a holy kiss. So Jeff will be at the door handing out holy kisses on your way out. And, or maybe it's, it's Hershey's kisses. I'm sorry. That's what he's going to be handing out at the, at the door. We'll leave you all to decide. <laughs> you can decide which one's better. Okay, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.